this point, asking of themselves and that which is around them some shared questions. And it's only at the point that you ask the question that you can hear the answer. It is only at the point when it begins to dawn on you that maybe all of the methods you had available to you thus far aren't going to be enough. All we can do at this point is to share our journeys with one another. I certainly, in no even minute sense, come before you to uh, proselytize because the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, he that teaches those that do not want to hear is performing an immoral act. And besides, they can't hear it anyway. So it's only when, in Sanskrit, they call it virag, when there is a certain amount of feeling of the falling away of worldliness, of the pull of certain things, that you're ready to hear another message. And I'm going to share with you my own experiences thus far in my journey, briefly, and try to explore some of the implications of them. As I say, the likelihood that anybody in this room will ever go my trip, wear a dress and grow a beard and uh, uh, become sexually continent and live in the Himalayas, that's just a trip. It's a groovy trip, but it's a trip, and it's unique to the fact that that's suitable for me at this moment. Each pilgrim on the path has to find his own way. However, all paths lead to the same place. And therefore, by hearing of other people's journeys, you can get clear as to where it is you're going, and you can get some of the dynamics of method, comparatively, perhaps. My story is a story of three chapters. The first chapter I can tell most briefly at this point in my life. It used to be the longest chapter. The second chapter is a little longer, and the third chapter is perhaps the pertinent one for the evening. Chapter one, um, I trained to be a social psychologist in the field of child development and personality theory. I got my PhD from Stanford, and I was a professor at Harvard. I taught at Cal and Stanford and Harvard. I came from a middle-class, upwardly mobile family. <laughs> and I got my PhD primarily out of fear. And I knew when I took my doctoral exams that I didn't know, but I was very charming. <laughs> and when I got to Harvard, I assumed that now that I was in one of the inner temples, I would know. And I taught hip courses, I taught Freud and human motivation. 
clinical pathology. And I went to the first faculty meeting, and it, they had high tea at 3.30. <laughs> and it was very much like being in the Virginia Assembly at the, uh, one of the historical landmarks in the United States. Even if they were talking about the hours that Radcliffe women had to be in bed, it all sounded like a high oratory out of a Greek amphitheater. And I was very awed by it, but as the time went on, I was there for five years, I began to see that um, we didn't know enough. Down the hall from me, in one direction, was Eric Erickson, another was Dave Reisman, Jerry Bruner of Cognitive Psychology, some of the people who were social scientists who supposedly knew. But it stood to reason that if we all knew, we should really be grooving. And we weren't. Life just wasn't beautiful enough. Everybody was talking about the rat race, looking drawn out in a highly competitive field. And what bothered me was I knew I didn't know. But if you look in other people's eyes to get the image of who you are, it's pretty good. And everybody kept saying, well, he's a Harvard professor, so he knows. And my mother was proud of me. <laughs> and I had collected all of the symbols of success in society, or at least a large number of them. I had a Cessna airplane and a Mercedes-Benz and a Triumph motorcycle. <laughs> and a bachelor apartment full of antiques, and I had groovy dinner parties with bouillabaisse and white wine. And I went skin diving in Nassau, and, you know, and I sat on important committees. But every now and then, just before I'd be going to sleep, or when I'd be in the bathtub or something, that'd be that moment when there wasn't somebody else's eyes to look into to tell me how wonderful I was. And I knew that it wasn't enough. Didn't make it. And tenure was being dangled before my nose if I merely got my, quote, publications in order. And I thought, well, I have 40 more years of this. And I think it is most likely that I would have gone along at that pace just collecting more and more badges. But down the hall from me, I was a big empire builder. I had 40 research assistants and um, two secretaries and four offices at Harvard, and I was in four different departments. And um, down the hall from me, in a little closet-like room that didn't have any secretaries and nothing going, sat a man, and we became drinking buddies, and his name was Timothy Leary. And one evening, we talked about Mexico, and he said he was going to be in Mexico the next summer, and invited me to visit with him. And in a drunken moment, I said, well, why don't we fly across the north of South America, because I'm a pilot. And he said, that's a great idea. So we made a plan, and I neglected to tell him that all I had was my student license.
But I worked hard all spring, and I got my license the day before I left for Mexico. And it was a hair-raising trip, and I arrived at the Cuernavaca, where Timothy was, and he had just ingested these mushrooms, which are called Tiananoctal, or flesh of the gods. And he said he had seen more in nine hours than he had learned in all his years as a psychologist. And there weren't any more mushrooms around. <laughs> so we didn't go to South America. We hung out and talked about the mushrooms. And then we went back to the United States, and I was away. I was teaching at Cal as a visiting professor. And when I got back in the spring, one night on the night of a large snowstorm, I was invited over to Timothy's house. I was visiting my parents in this suburb near Timothy, about a few blocks away. And I walked the few blocks to uh, ingest psilocybin, the synthetic of the Mexican mushrooms. And after a kind of a melodramatic social scene in the kitchen over whether the dog was going to die, <laughs> it's that peculiar situation you get into when you've taken a psychedelic because the dog had been out running in the snow and was panting. And the question was, was he panting naturally or not? And how would we know? <laughs> But Tim's young son, 11 years old, came down and set us straight. <laughs> and then I went off into the living room by myself. And this is the report of that.